Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up, President Biden planning the first major tax hike in 30 years. We'll discuss a new statewide poll, and Governor Cooper seeks a grand bargain on Medicaid expansion. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with Carolina Journal, communications consultant Donna King, political analyst Joe Stewart, and Nelson Dollar, senior advisor to the North Carolina Speaker of the House. Mitch, why don't we begin with President Biden's tax plan? Shortly after Congress finalized and President Biden signed a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package, we started hearing talk about the next major piece of the Biden agenda, and that could be an infrastructure package tied in with what could be the largest tax hike in America in almost 30 years. Right now, this is just in the report stage. But it is being tied into discussions about the Build Back Better plan, which would be spending on infrastructure, green energy, and other Biden administration priorities. We know some of the top things because of what he talked about on the campaign trail that Joe Biden would put in his tax plan. It would be raising the corporate income tax rate from 21 percent to 28 percent. For families, higher taxes on anyone making $400,000 or more. Uh, boosting the estate tax again, also raising the capital gains tax rate. The Tax Policy Center has suggested that this package could raise $2.1 trillion over 10 years. It's unlikely that any Republicans would go along with Democrats. So this is the type of thing that if it gets through Congress, it's going to have to squeak through, through some sort of deal that would require a Senate vote of 50 votes plus a tiebreaker from Kamala Harris. Donna, do you think they'll break the uh, filibuster rule to get this through? Well, there is some rumor that they're working on it. You can see them sort of, you know, trying to test the waters a bit on some of the news talk shows. Uh, as early as last year, Joe Biden called it dangerous. Now, of course, the filibuster we're talking about is really a tool for the minority party to exert some political muscle uh, in, in votes when they don't have the, the majority. So if you eliminate the filibuster, it takes that tool from the minority party. Now, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Chuck Schumer, Biden have all at some point or another particularly when they were in the minority party, said, no, we shouldn't eliminate it. It really could be dangerous. But they're starting to test the waters uh, to see if they could. Now, they really don't need to because if it's about tax and spending or judicial appointments, a few other things, they could just move through with on what they call reconciliation, which means that they would just need right. a simple majority. But they may expand the number of types of bills that would fall under reconciliation in lieu of eliminating the filibuster. Nelson, how do you think uh, raising the taxes on corporations will affect our global competitiveness? And uh, will you think uh, potentially uh, corporations will move back overseas? You, have, you run that risk. I mean, this makes no economic sense, Mark. In the last year, Congress has borrowed over $5 trillion to put into the economy to address COVID for businesses and individuals to keep them going. Now they're proposing to take out between two and four trillion dollars out of the private sector to spend on more 
uh, government programs. When you look at what the Fed has said, they are not going to raise interest rates until 2023 because their goal for employment and growth have not been met. So if the nonpartisan experts are saying that our economic goals have not been met, why raise taxes? Why drive that capital out? Because at the very time this is going on, baby boomers are moving their money, monies out of equities as they retire over the next two years. Joe, how does this affect small business? A lot of uh, small businesses uh, file individual tax uh, reform, uh, tax forms. Yeah, whatever the tax consequences are of this proposal, what ultimately gets passed by Congress, I'm reminded of something my father used to say. The reason why the Grand Canyon is where it is is that's where the Colorado River figured out the dirt would give way. So <laughs> whatever you put in place in terms of forms of taxation, if it's going to discourage the deployment of capital by businesses, large and small, they're going to work to find ways around those imposed rules. The truth is this could, in effect, create an encourage a disencouragement of businesses to continue to expand to create jobs the things we need in the aftermath of covid-19 you know it's important to remember okay. too taxation's really government borrowing money from the private economy it should always be for the good purpose of trying to expand economic opportunities for the people that the government serves okay i want to move on come right back to you joe and talk about this new civitas statewide survey yeah, a survey came out this week, Civitas and the John Locke Foundation now emerged, but they're continuing to do this public opinion research. Uh, great information. The thing that really struck me from this poll, when asked the question, did you feel the country is headed in the right direction or is on the wrong track? By 10 percentage points, people are pessimistic that the country is actually on the wrong track. When you look at the approval ratings, President Biden, one percentage point underwater in terms of approval and disapproval. Governor Cooper, three percentage points above water, so people more more positive in their assessment of the performance of the governor than they are of the president. The generic ballot, when you ask people in the 2022 election, irrespective of the candidates, are you planning to vote for either the Democrat or the Republican? In both the congressional and the state legislative races, pretty evenly split between Democrat and Republican in terms of people's perceptions of who they're likely to support. The thing that was really interesting to me relative to the 2022 election, when asked the question, do you have reason to believe that that election will be fair? 40% of the respondents said no, that they were not certain that the election of 2022 would be fair. And that sort of spills over into the issue sets that voters are expressing their greatest interest in looking to 2022 and what candidates will be talking about in that campaign. Republican-leaning uh, respondents in the survey said okay. free and fair elections were a critical issue for them, where Democrats and unaffiliated voters said health care and jobs and the economy were the most important issues that they'll be thinking about heading into the next election. Nelson, jump in here. Give us your take. Well, the survey supports certainly the General Assembly's policies of the last decade, lowering taxes, controlling spending, and increasing state spending. But uh, to Joe's point on right track, wrong track, which was popularized, of course, by Richard Worthlin, uh, President Reagan's pollster, the last truly happy year in the United States was 2000. Uh, according to Gallup's uh, surveys, uh, only two times since then has national satisfaction been above 60%. Those were the months after 9-11 when we were unified and right at the beginning of the Iraq War in 2003. So really, if you look at it, since the end of the Cold War, what we lack in the United States is a country that has a unifying purpose. Okay, Donna, jump in here. 
Well, actually, speaking to both of what they what they have said, I feel like people are sort of shell shocked over the last year of 2020. So I think it's cre- created a more cynical approach to government. Uh, people saying that they don't think 2022 is going to be fair. And when you look at the overall issues that they found to be most important, election integrity jumped to number two overall um, behind the the economy and jobs. And now, of course, that's mostly led by Republicans said more that election integrity was important to them. Democrats said more health care. But the numbers across the board, election integrity became number two. And I think that's really important to notice. The other thing, energy. I thought there's a really interesting part about this survey. Uh, More people were concerned about uh, having a reliable, sustained source of energy. And I think that one of the reasons is because we saw this almost post-apocalyptic year with uh, riots and widespread outages and all that. People are starting to think what else could be coming down the road. And they're talking about really wanting to make sure our power grid is really reliable. Okay, Mitch, wrap this up in about 40 seconds. Put it in context, please, my friend. Joe mentioned off the top that 40% of the people in this poll do not think that we're going to have free and fair elections in 2022. The flip side is that less than half believe that we will. What a bad sign. Only 49% of those surveyed believe we'll have free and fair elections, and there really is a partisan split on this. Only 27% of Republicans believe we'll have free and fair elections. And if you think, well, it's just sour grapes, one party against the other, among unaffiliateds, only 44% think we'll have free and fair elections. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. That's a bad sign when you have that many people who don't believe the election system is going to be free and fair. Okay, I want to move on. Donna, there was a wide-ranging interview with Governor Cooper in Politico this last week. Fill us in. Yes, yes, it covered a lot of ground. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper sat down with Politico this week, and they talked about a a lot of wide-ranging topics. But one of the things they really touched on was the idea of Medicaid expansion. Now, the governor said that he sensed a tide in the water, that there might be some room for a uh, a bipartisan compromise on Medicaid expansion. He called it, like you said, he called it uh, the, the grand bargain. Now, you may remember that this bargain mood started really last week when Republicans and Democrat Governor Cooper and Democrat leaders all came together to announce the uh, bill to reopen public schools. Now, if you follow politics at all, you know that seeing all of them together was was an unusual, really one for the books there. Uh, but Cooper said that he feels like that grand bargain may be in the water there. Um, he has said for a long time that Medicaid expansion under Obamacare was really important to him. He vetoed the state budgets that included teacher raises. Uh, because it did not include funding for Medicaid expansion. Uh, Senate Republican leader um, Phil Berger has said that he just feels like the existing program, putting more money into it, is just bad policy. So the idea that all of these people, these people are coming together over a conference table instead of in a courtroom is a good sign. But at the end of the day, we really need to watch what they do, but not what they say. You know, Mitch, the governor did speak out about election reform, and he kind of drew a line in the sand, didn't he? Yeah, he certainly did. He is certainly on the side of those who are challenging any attempts to uh, increase the security of the elections, calling it vote suppression, the type of things that we've heard from the Democratic activists challenging the laws. Going back to the Medicaid expansion thing, I think this is a case of wishful thinking on the governor's part. Uh, One of the reasons you might think there could be a new deal on Medicaid expansion is that the coronavirus federal relief package had more incentives for the states that haven't expanded Medicaid 
But as Donna alluded to, Senator Phil Berger hasn't been more inclined to support Medicaid expansion. And I think also as telling, one of the members of the House who has been interested in expansion, Representative Donnie Lambeth, has looked at this federal relief package and said he's still not convinced that this would do what North Carolina needs to do to have Medicaid expansion. Nelson, what struck you about this interview, my friend? Well, what strikes me is, and this builds on what Donna and Mitch have said, everyone understands this year we cannot get caught up in one issue to hold back the state budget. So in my mind, the grand bargain is pass a bipartisan budget, have that signed by the governor in June, and then begin to work on the $15.8 billion in COVID relief that the General Assembly has been sent to us by Congress because we're going to need to determine the best ways to invest that money and to help local governments and schools with their share, as well as comply with the federal strings attached. Really, it's the most unprecedented challenge uh, that the state has ever had in terms of finances. And that is going to end up being the major focus and the major bargain at the end of the day. The governor releases his budget, what, next week, Nelson? Yes, he releases it on... Uh, Wednesday, and then it will be presented Thursday morning to a joint session of the full appropriation committee. Joe, wrap this up in about 40 seconds, my friend. You know, I think it is very hopeful that the governor and legislative leaders were able to get together relative to school reopening. That's a good sign. Uh, but I don't think we should start playing the pina colada song yet. I don't know that there's <laughs> harmony here in a way that we can expect everything will now come together in a bipartisan way. Certainly the governor's budget will be a big uh, uh, indicator of whether there's a willingness to continue to work cooperatively. And as Nelson talked about, all of the distribution of the federal COVID relief money has yet to come. And some speculation that the legislature wants to look at ways to reshape the governor's authority in a disaster a situation, an emergency situation such as COVID-19 was, we'll see if they're able to maintain that friendliness that was demonstrated in the school reopening agreement. Okay, we're going to change gears. Nelson, let's talk about the uh, Governor Newsom. The recall out there in California is getting real. Yes, Mark. Uh, California's had until St. Patty's Day to collect at least uh, 1.5 million signatures to recall Governor Newsom. They collected over 2 million signatures. The local boards of elections have until April 29th to verify those signatures. Currently, the verification rate is running about 80%. They need it to run about 75% in order to make the threshold. If they make that threshold, then the process will move toward an election later this fall. There'll be two questions on the ballot, yes or no, on recalling Governor Newsom. And then who would you want to replace him? Uh, which would be open to any Californian paying the filing fee. The last time this happened, over 100 people filed. Uh, it will probably come down to probably three or four major candidates uh, should Governor Newsom be successfully uh, recalled. Uh, and I would point out that uh, the latest UC Berkeley poll has shown that Newsom continues uh, to lose support. He is now down to 44% favorable, 49% unfavorable. I've seen a lot of polls on this, bitch, but one poll struck me that one in three independents and Democrats want him recalled. Yeah, that's certainly bad news for the governor. And we've seen a statewide poll that said 58% of people don't want him to have a second term. That, of course, is different from a recall. I think the one thing that helps him at this point is that we have not yet seen the emergence of the 
anti-Newsom. Last time this happened in uh, California, of course, when Gray Davis went out, there was the Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger, as an alternative. And if some big-name person within the California political scene comes forward and is seen as a good alternative to Newsom, that would be really bad news for him. At this point, though, I think his, his uh, best bet is to rely on people saying, well, let's stick with the devil we know rather than the one we don't know. Donna, that, that he's, I think Mitch is correct in that. There's not a household name that's uh, come forth yet, but Rick Cannell, the former DNI to Trump, is considering, correct? Yes, he is. And I think that, that is one thing that will really uh, turn the tide for Newsom. If he does come out and he does say it, I don't know that he has the name recognition among younger voters, but certainly he would draw in uh, votes from older folks. And one of the things that we do need to point out that when you look at that poll, um, the younger voters were more likely to vote in favor of, of his recall. The older voters are the ones that wanted him to stay in place. So I think it's interesting. If they bring somebody in uh, who can appeal to that younger voter, they will be more, more likely to draw in their friends and continue signing those petitions to recall. One thing we know, Joe, this is going to be a consultant's dream. Uh, that's the most expensive media market in the country. Well, and that's certainly the case. And I think even with recall elections in California, and then you also have propositions that are often on the ballot. It does have a tendency to lure in a lot of consultants who make big bucks off of this. Although I think the bigger issue is that California may have gotten too big to be one state. Oh, it's, a, it's only like the 13th largest economy in the world if you took it away from the United States. So I propose that we divide California into three states. A northern tier would be Sacramento. On the middle part, we would call San Francisco, <laughs> and the southern end of California, I would call the state of Rotterman. Okay, but what they are doing is, I've seen the whole Obama team and some of Biden's team, uh, Nelson, are signing on with Newsom. They are. They have to rescue him. I mean, they don't want to give Republicans an opportunity to regain any power in the state and, and potentially uh, reverse their fortunes. You know, one of the things that's happened to Republicans over the last... Uh, 10, 12 years as they have dropped in registration from around 35% right. to 25%. So uh, they have some work to do. Okay, we'll continue to follow that. Let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. If the U.S. Senate does get rid of the filibuster, the Democrats in the Senate would still need to have a united front, all 50 votes to counter the 50 Republican votes and pass major pieces of controversial legislation. That includes H.R. 1, the big nationalized election overhaul. One of the people who would have to vote along with this for Democrats to get it through is West Virginia's Senator Joe Manchin. But the underreported piece of this story is that a recent poll came out from McLaughlin and Associates that showed that West Virginians are overwhelmingly against this idea, 79% against H.R. 1. Meanwhile, 77% support voter ID, which is one of the things that would be thrown out by H.R. 1. Also, 7 in 10 voters uh, in West Virginia support maintaining the filibuster. Donna, underreported, please. So just in time for Easter, Israeli archaeologists say that they have found brand new fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, about 2,000 years old. And they're saying that these, this biblical text is really starting to uncover some of the 
early, early history of Judaism and Christianity. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it. That's a great cash, and I think it's very interesting. Joe, underreported, please. Yeah, in a 75-minute virtual press conference last week, the North Carolina High School Athletic Association, the governing body over sports in high schools, uh, expressing frustration with legislative inquiries about its operation, some sense of tension between that body and legislators looking to try to get high school athletic sport audiences back up. But one of the things that was revealed is the entity is holding on to about a $40 million surplus, and in part, legislators were questioning, where does this money come from? If it comes from high schools that are paying fees to be part of the High School Athletic Association. Those are taxpayer dollars, and legislators want to know more about how that money is managed and what it's going to be used for. I think this story we'll hear more about in the coming weeks. Nelson, underreported, please. Yes, in November, the Chinese government pulled the mega IPO for Jack Ma's Ant Group. We now know that one of the major investors in that was the grandson of former Chinese leader Zhao Ziming, uh, who was a major opener of China back in the 90s. Uh, another high-tech billionaire was also ousted uh, from his company this week. The Chinese Communist Party is systematically cracking down on business leaders, former party leaders, minority groups, autonomous regions uh, like Tibet, and of course, Hong Kong has now essentially lost its special status. This crackdown is because China is in crisis. President Xi has failed to manage the U.S. relationship, and certainly public opinion in America, their largest customer, has turned markedly against China. There's really no signs. Uh, this is not the signs of a confident rising power, but really a system that is desperate to head off an implosion. Do you see them testing the Biden administration early? They did have a meeting in Alaska this week, uh, and I understand it was very testy. Uh, it was testy, and and uh, or, or it's going to be coming up. And you know, they're they're not meeting uh, with President Biden. Uh, early in Trump's administration, uh, Xi went to Mar-a-Lago, had a face-to-face -face meeting with the president. Uh, president Biden has given no indications of having any face-to-face -face meetings with Xi right now, and that is really a problem for the Chinese. They really want the tariffs lifted, don't they? They have to have the tariffs lifted, but they are also in the process of, you know, genocide with the Uyghur people in the, in the western part of the country. They are still uh, mining intellectual property from the United States, and they are on a daily basis threatening the airspace uh, and the security of Taiwan, uh, which is a key ally of the United States. Okay, we got to move on. Let's go to lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? Who's up Wounded Heroes? The State House unanimously approved a bill that would set April 24th as a Wounded Heroes Day, honoring all of those who have been hurt overseas, and especially honoring Army Sergeant Michael Verardo, who lost an arm and a leg, suffered a serious brain injury, but has been able to overcome this after his service in Afghanistan. So, Wounded Heroes, what's down? North Carolina's literacy test. It hasn't been enforced for decades, but our state constitution still requires a literacy test for uh, voter registration, and a new bipartisan group within the General Assembly is talking about finally getting rid of this from the state constitution, a relic of the Jim Crow era. Donna, who's up and who's down? 
So up, I'm going to say moving van rentals. Pew Research just put out a study that said 25% of people said that they either have already moved or plan to move as a result of the pandemic, just change their residence altogether. And the top 10 best states for a post-pandemic life, well, Raleigh came in at number nine, uh, Atlanta was number one, and Tampa was number 10. So a lot of people hitting the road after the pandemic. Um, down the Washington Post, the editors there had to issue a correction after an article just flew through the media um, and it said that it claimed that Donald Trump had said to Georgia officials to go find the fraud. Uh, it turned out after listening to the tapes of these conversations, he didn't say that and the Washington Post was forced to issue a retraction. Joe, who's up and who's down? Who's up is the flow of campaign cash out of Wall Street. Uh, many firms announcing they would not give money to members of Congress who didn't denounce uh, the uh, uh, disruptions that took place on January 6th in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, they return now to that pace of giving money uh, to those candidates. Who's down? Really the lure of big cities, places like New York, who are dealing with the aftermath of COVID-19, as well as civil uh, disturbances last summer. Uh, business leaders in those places saying they, they want to see uh, end to disorder in the cities a word that they're using relative to the operation of those cities. North Carolina may be a continued beneficiary of the fleeing from New York City as New Yorkers move to North Carolina. We'll see. Does that have an impact on our politics, making our purple state maybe even a little more blue? Nelson, who's up and who's down? Uh, who's up? The National Hockey League by signing a new seven-year TV contract with ABC, ESPN, Disney. The NHL will dramatically increase their audience reach and their revenues. And this is, of course, perfect timing for the Carolina Hurricanes, who are in the top three of the NHL's power rankings. Uh, could be their year for another Stanley Cup. That would be a major up. Uh, who's down? European countries really for halting the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which the EU medical authority cleared again this week. Uh, those countries on the continent are truly falling further behind the United States and the UK in vaccinations, and their cases are also rising as a result. Will we be sending them some of our vaccine, you think? I think we will. Once we get the United States vaccinated, it's like you've said before, Mark, uh, the United States will have the opportunity to engage in vaccine diplomacy all across the world and possibly help a few selected friends in Europe. Okay, let's go to the headline next week. Quickly, Mitch. Job applications continue to tick up as work requirements kick in for North Carolina unemployment. Donna, headline next week, please. Governor Pat McCrory jumps in the Senate race. Headline next week, Joe. Blizzards, tornadoes, and a call for an increased activity of hurricanes this season. 2021 shaping up to be 2020's evil twin. Quickly, headline next week, Nelson. No clear winner in the Israeli national elections, and this is their fourth try in the last two years. Okay, that's it for us. We've got a roll. Great job, panel. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.